I need to give you a warning about this episode. We are going to be a little wonky today, but I promise it's nothing you can't handle, and I encourage you to take a listen. That's because we're going to talk about policy and legislation, because it has a huge effect on women's health. Not just the obvious rulings like the overturn of Roe v. Wade, but also policies about what kind of research gets funding, what kinds of care is covered by insurance, and how companies that could improve women's health get supported or not. At the end of this episode, I promise you'll feel smarter and you'll pick up some useful information about how you can advocate for policies that support the causes that are important to you. Our guest today helps to educate policymakers as well as influence their policy decisions. She'll not only tell us about her work, but she'll also help us understand how we as individuals can speak up for our own healthcare needs. Hi, welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover. Today's guest is Liz Powell. She is founder of G2G Innovative Government Affairs Consulting. Welcome, Liz. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So what is government affairs consulting? Let's just go ahead and start right there. Sure. Uh, well, government, government touches all of our lives in uh, so many ways, and government affairs is really just an effort to engage with government officials um, to educate them, make sure they understand how government is touching their lives, and, and hopefully influence the process in a very positive way so it is uh, truly democratic and truly representing the interests of the people. Terrific. And so would someone also call you a lobbyist? Yes, they would. Lobbyist, <laughs> advocate, all the same thing. Um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, lobbyists may have kind of a negative tinge um, in some ways to some folks. And so I love the fact that you've uh, called it uh, an advocate because that's really what you do. At what point does someone need to hire a lobbyist or advocate? That's a good question, and it sort of depends. I would say um, if you are trying to change a policy, a regulation, or enact a new one um, that is not just for your one little company but will have broader impact, um, I think a lobbyist makes a lot of sense because you're going to have to um, understand the nuances of legislation and where to insert language, when, um, who to be targeting and talking to, um, and having a balanced approach that's not just Congress, but also agency and White House um, meetings and influence. So um, that's probably one I would recommend, um, finding a lobbyist to help you navigate those waters um, and sort of keep you on track. And what's your background and how does one arrive at being an advocate or a lobbyist? Sure. So I actually worked on Capitol Hill for several years um, as a legislative director, and I tracked and drafted policy and worked on efforts, um, always in a bipartisan fashion, to get legislation through Congress and over to the White House to become law. Um, in doing that, I learned all kinds of um, ways that that happens, uh, which is amazing, uh, all the different ways that can happen. And um, I'm also a lawyer, and I have a master's in public health. And um, so I 
with that background, I met a lot of entrepreneurs and nonprofits doing great work, a lot in healthcare, um, but other areas as well, but not knowing necessarily how to navigate government. And that's where I got the idea to start G2G, which stands for Government to Growth. So that is what we are all about. You know, I did not know that. That's great to know. Um, And so why would entrepreneurs need to know about government? Great question. So again, as I said at the top, um, government really is impacting all of us on a regular basis. And so for entrepreneurs, whether it's R&D tax credits, um, small business loans, um, even shaping during the COVID pandemic, shaping those dollars that were coming out for businesses um, to ensure that they didn't have to lay off a bunch of people. There's all kinds of things that are happening at that um federal level that come down, trickle down and affect us as entrepreneurs, as business owners. And you can shape that process. Um, Members of Congress, federal departments, White House, they want to hear from us. They want to know what is going on, what are the challenges and opportunities that we're facing, and how can government be a better partner in that effort. And so that's why it's super important, I think, for all entrepreneurs to have a basic understanding of what's going on in government and to see if there are ways to shape it to, to strengthen their opportunities to grow. Liz and I met through the Women's Health Innovation Coalition, an initiative of Springboard Enterprises, which supports early-stage women entrepreneurs. The coalition is comprised of individuals from all over the women's health spectrum, academics, scientists, advocates, clinicians, investors, and entrepreneurs, in order to promote the innovation that's needed to solve the many women's health issues that haven't been addressed adequately up until now. I've learned so much from seeing, you know, your comments um, and that of your associates with respect to some of the barriers that are specific, perhaps, to those entrepreneurs focusing on women's health. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the Women's Health Innovation Coalition was started two years ago now um, because several of us did an all-day meeting in New York City at the end of 2019 Um, addressing a lot of different health issues and realizing that there was a common theme, that there were these gaps in women's health that were not being addressed. And because there's these systemic challenges um, that are blocking that. So whether it's the investment, um, less than 4% of VC investment is going towards women's health innovation, whether it's government funding with only 11% of NIH funding going towards women's health, um, or just the entire ecosystem not recognizing that there are these specific areas where diseases or conditions solely disproportionately or differently impact women and have started to chip away at educating government um, on these differences to try and correct this uh, system that really um, is hurting women's health um, by not supporting the innovation space. And how can... uh those policies really impact on the innovation space? What are you asking them to do? Sure. So for example, um, diversity in clinical trials is still a problem. The vast majority of preclinical, which is, you know, animal studies is actually done on male mice, male animals, um, and they don't have to justify it. They can continue to doing that. Um, Since 2016, NIH has required um, that sex as a variable be defined in clinical studies, so that's great. However, you still 
don't have to have women. You just have to explain why you don't have women in your clinical trial. So there's still some gaps out there that is impacting not just the health of women, but also the ability to further research. The less data and knowledge that we have about the impact of these drugs and devices on men and women, um, the less we're able to bring forward new innovation. So that's how it directly impacts the innovation space. Right. And so what you're really saying is that um, obviously innovation starts with the data. And if we don't have the research, we don't have the data for these uh, companies to to make a difference, if you will. Um, you want to say a little bit about what you found is a barrier to including women in research? Oh, because traditionally, um, well, first of all, way back, they actually banned women um, in clinical trials to start with, but then that was lifted. Um, and then a lot of researchers said, well, it's too complicated um, with hormones. Um, it adds this um, variable to the study, so it's just too complicated to have to explain. And it makes clinical studies more expensive because then you'd have to have more um, participants. So there's lots of reasons why. However, those very reasons are exactly why we need to be doing this because we need to better understand um, how drugs and medical innovations are impacting women versus men. And, you know, there's something to be gained for men here because women live longer than men. So what if there's some untapped knowledge there that could actually benefit men? With respect to you know, some of the companies that I that both you and I see in terms of the women's health space. What I've also seen is that they are generating their own data, if you will, because they can almost crowdsource some of the different kinds of products that they're doing, whether it be an app or a consumer product. And how do you see that impacting on, um, on what you're doing? Yeah, I think data is central to anything in the innovation space and improving healthcare. And so with all these different devices now for uh, patients to track their own uh, health um, is going to be super um, powerful and it can be used for good and bad, um, unfortunately. And so it's important that um, patients maintain control of their health, their health records, their health data. Um, and that it is used in appropriate fashion. Um, but anonymizing data to provide insights for the greater population um, is a huge opportunity. I just think we need to tread carefully with all this data that we're capturing. And so where do you see policy going and what kinds of things are you going to be advocating for, especially as, uh, for example, reproductive health issues are coming to the forefront and there's so much data being acquired by these apps. And what I understand, for example, is that HIPAA may not, and that's the Privacy Act, the, the Patient Privacy Act, may not cover some of these apps. So what do we as consumers need to know about? And what should we be uh, asking our politicians to, uh, to support? Yeah, I think it's important for us to push back with the different apps that we're using to um, ask what their policy is um, as far as the security and privacy. Um, and also we need to read the fine print. Oftentimes when you put a new app on, it pops up, you just click OK and don't think about it. But I think we actually need to push back on, on the private side um, 
to these companies to make sure that uh, it truly is uh, private. Um, and then on the government front, I think that there there's a lot of um, space where um, there's a lot of questioning right now. Um, and then with this new Supreme Court decision that will reverse Roe v. Wade, significantly change it, there's going to be tons of ripple effect um, from that as well. And so I think that currently there's tons of gaps and loopholes, and then there'll be even more um, to figure out after that decision. So I can see Congress trying to tackle that. However, um, the, the reproductive health abortion issue is so controversial and divisive for many in Congress that it will be very hard for them to work together on that. However, the broader issue of digital health for patients, I do think Congress could come up with um, some solutions that could protect privacy. Um, I think that there's, there's a lot of question marks right now, though. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about how policy is influenced, why that's important, and how we as individuals can affect policy change. Welcome back to Beyond the Paper Gown. We're talking to Liz Powell, founder of G2G, a government affairs consultancy. You know, I'm kind of curious, and I want to talk a little bit about the process a little bit. Digital health is new for everybody. Obviously, folks my kids' age grew up with this, but uh, many of us are acquiring the knowledge. And then you've got even, you know, older states, men and women as well. Do you feel that they're equipped? How do you help them? you know, work through some of that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think most legislators are quite um, advanced in their ages. I'd say that in a tactful way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a challenge. Um, but the staff are actually usually pretty young. Staff are 20s to 30s. And so um, you can uh, work with the staff to come up with a way to communicate to the member um on these issues. So I think it's really important um, to work with staff directly. Don't just prioritize the member of Congress. Um, The staff are really key. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of education that needs to happen before you can influence and try and change policies or create new policies. Um, I think we we have to start at a very basic level. And how do how do you get the attention of these staffers and these legislatures on any of the issues that you think are important? Because I would assume everybody who comes to them thinks that their you know, issue is so important. And, and how have you been successful in doing that? Yeah, I think that um, there's a couple ways to make sure you can have an impact. So one is to really be focused um, and understand what you want to accomplish in your communication with the staff before ever starting that conversation and making sure that you're succinct and to the point. Um, the staff do not have a lot of time. Um, and you know, I've been in many meetings where folks came when I was working on the Hill in, in Congress and they would sort of vomit up information at me um, with no real focus to it. So it's really important. Just get your talking points in order before you even have that conversation. And then when you have the conversation, I think the best is to have that combination of statistics and clear facts that make it very compelling with a personal story. That combination is very, very compelling, um, for staff. And it is a way to break through the noise. There's a ton of noise right now with Congress. They're hit up by so many people and so many issues and, 
larger issues than um, all of us going on right now. So I think it's really important to get your talking points down before you even set that meeting, stick to them, be succinct and to the point, share statistics and facts, and then also personal story. Those would be my my main tips. And then afterwards, stay in touch. Um, don't just assume that one great meeting does it. You have to be consistent, persistent um, over time. And so do you have to be a registered lobbyist to, to take those tips and, and put those into action? No. In fact, we all are technically the employers of our elected officials because we're paying them. Our taxpayer dollars are paying their salaries. So any one of us has the right um, and the ability to call up um, your member of Congress and tell them your opinion. And thanks to websites, um, there's a lot of information that's readily available. There on all of the websites, there's a contact us link where you can just send in communications. You can also look up who the staffer is for health issues, for example, if you wanted to do a call on health issues. And you can send an email and request a call and, and have your own. I mean, I keep saying call because we're in this COVID world where everything still is pretty <laughs> much a Zoom call sure. uh, of some form. Um, yes, every single one of the tip um, tips I gave you, you can absolutely do and on your own. Um, I think, though, if you are lobbying to change a policy um, for a specific company or organization, you do have to register. Um, so that is something if you get really sophisticated. But if you're just calling as a constituent to say, I care about this issue and I want you to do something about it, you do not need to register for that. Terrific. Uh, any uh, shining examples you want to share and, and take us through the process that you've been successful at? Um, boy, there's there's lots to choose from. So I will choose... Rare cancer. So most people don't realize that um, 380 rare cancers out of 400 cancers are in existence. So the vast majority are rare. Um, however, most of our research programs are tilted towards the common cancers. So we did a whole education campaign on Capitol Hill to educate on rare cancers, the impact, and um, that in fact, one third of all new diagnoses this year will be rare cancers. Um, and as we study more and more the molecular driver of each cancer, we will find that it's probably more. Um, and we have this historic anachronistic way of defining cancer by organ, but it's actually the molecular driver that determines that cancer. So we did a big education campaign. We organized congressional briefings, um, submitted testimony, submitted language. In the end, we were very successful in um, creating some new funding lines. In particular, Department of Defense is a great resource for health research. Most people don't realize that, but it is the biggest source of funding for breast cancer research, for example, um, prostate yes. cancer research. And now there is a line for rare cancer, and it's a competitive grant program. But finally, they're addressing this um aspect of cancer that has been ignored for far too long. And the thing is, if you have breast cancer, prostate cancer, there are treatments out there. If you have a rare cancer, over 80% of them, there's no treatment out there. You literally have no options. And that's what we're trying to tackle. So I think that's a good case study in education, communication, persistence, um, finding the right lines of the bills to influence. Um, we had a few other accomplishments as well um, within um, FDA, Health and Human Services, um, in addition to that one. But I think that new funding line is huge. So there's an example. 
That's a great example. Um, there's also the Moms Act. Yes. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So what's really powerful is, um, and this goes to actually um, voting. So we finally have um, many more, I think it's over 25% of um, the House is now uh, represented by women, which is great. That's a big, you know, improvement. However, we are still 51% of the population, so we still have a ways to go. But because um, we all as voters sent more women to Congress, I think there was this greater awareness of maternal health and maternal health gaps, especially among black women. Um, and so, uh, not only did you have women's caucus, but you had black women's, um, legislators coming together to create a caucus and to really push forward this legislation. And it was a very unified effort and they worked, um, with Speaker Pelosi to make sure it got into the final package. Um, and so there's, uh, a lot of power in who we elect to office and then working with them once they're there to address gaps. Um, so that's a great example, um, of, of that, of success. No, absolutely. Thank you for, for that, because as you know, it's amazing that the United States uh, scores so low in maternal child health. You know, while I was at UMAN as Vice President of Women's Health, there was legislation that was created in two different areas. One was addressing what used to be called drive-through deliveries, so really wanting to make sure that moms stayed in the hospital at least 24 hours after vaginal delivery and 48 hours after a C-section. And I think, you know, it made a lot of sense to make sure that there were no complications before sending these new mothers home. Around the same time, there was also legislation that mandated that bone marrow transplant for breast cancer be covered by insurance. Unfortunately, the decision was made based on faulty science, which was debunked when adequate, credible research was conducted. But in the meantime, a lot of women suffered in the last part of their lives for really no benefit because legislation mandating coverage seemed to endorse this treatment. So remembering that, I'm always very cautious about or really critical of legislating medical care because science changes so quickly. So by the time a bill gets passed, the measure's obsolete. Yeah, I think that um, the rule of unintended consequences is always uh, pervasive and always a risk. Um, I also think that there's some basic health care that needs to be guaranteed to all patients, uh, regardless of what state you're in and what your Medicaid covers or what Medicare covers in your region. So um, I don't know. I'm not a physician, um, but I think there's got to be a way to have to strike that balance. Um, you know, for example, I'll tell you, there's this huge problem with FDA approves um, diagnostics, technologies, drugs, but then CMS doesn't cover right away except for the drugs. The drugs are covered right away, but those devices, diagnostics are not. And many are... And what you're talking about, excuse me for interrupting, but you're talking about being reimbursed if you're, um, you get your insurance through Medicare or Medicaid. Yeah. And then obviously the commercial plans usually follow um, what, the, uh, what those two entities do. Yeah. So it, it impacts on how ac people can access it or get it paid for. Exactly. And if it's not covered, which means it's being paid for, then it, the care is not going to be delivered, right? Because people need right. to be paid. So, um, but determining what is and isn't covered, you know, to your point, can be tricky. But at the same time, if it's been proven as effective, um, safe and effective, then why wouldn't we make it? available to patients. 
So there's a lot of questions there. Um, Certainly, I'm a big advocate of getting these innovations to patients as as soon as possible. Sure. So what you just talked about reminds me of the issue I think that we've actually talked about um, in the coalition as well um, during some of the sessions, and that's the idea of breakthrough designation so that um, the FDA kind of fast tracks those uh, uh, devices or therapeutics that they feel um, can solve a problem that that needs to be solved. But one of the ones that was not considered for breakthrough designation was anything dealing with endometriosis, Mm -hmm. which we know is a chronic and debilitating disease for those women who are experiencing it. Do you have a comment on that? Yeah, what's fascinating is um, one of the uh, diagnostics in the endometriosis space found that the FDA folks did not identify endometriosis as debilitating, and that was a major barrier. So they had to educate and get them to finally acknowledge, oh, this is debilitating. So there's definitely some work to be done um, in that whole review process. Um, And that's definitely something that we're trying to tackle with. Once you have that breakthrough designation, you should be um, pulled across uh, to also get the coverage, which gets back to that CMS issue I was talking about earlier. But um, there's just basic education of the, the FDA reviewers that needs to happen as well. Um, and this whole issue of women's health solely disproportionately or differently impacting women, I think that there's a lot of education that still needs to be done there. I think a lot of people don't realize that. And whose responsibility is it to educate them? I mean, you know, you're only one individual, one organization. So, and there's obviously an entire bureaucracy that we're talking about. I think we all are. Um, (laughs) That would be my answer. We're all responsible. Um, I just think that it's important for folks to realize that everything has to start with education. Um, So whether you're a company looking for fast approval of a new device or drug, or you're a nonprofit that's trying to increase coverage, um, whatever it is, it always has to start with education and thinking about that broader um, impact is really important. I think that's how we're going to make systemic change. So I I really think it's on all of us. And you talked about, you know, how we can all make change, especially maybe talking to staffers who are talking to the legislatures that are actually changing the policies and legislation. But then you've also talked about, you know, again, all the different um, regulatory areas like FDA. That seems to me daunting in terms of how do you reach all those folks? Daunting, exactly. Um, I think that having a plan, um, sort of targeting a targeting list, and then just start to chip away at each one is is a way to approach it. Um, it'll be overwhelming to think of everything at once, but I think you can make um, little dents um, in the in the process. Um, and you know, unfortunately, as I said earlier, one meeting isn't enough. Usually, you've got to stay on people and stay in communication, follow up. Um, you know, it's it's definitely not an easy process, and it takes a lot sure. of persistence, um, but it can work. But yeah, you you will have more, you will have a stronger voice if you team up um, with other organizations. Absolutely. Thank you. What did I not ask you that uh, we should be covering? 
I think you asked me quite a bit. This has been a fascinating discussion. Um, we covered a lot of different areas. I, you know, I just, I hope people take away that um, there's a lot going on, that it is your government and you have every right to shape it and you can shape it. Um, we shared some success stories. There's lots of um, frustrations and hurdles along the way, but you absolutely can make an impact. So I hope that that's a takeaway people have today. Great. Liz Powell from G2G Consulting, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been great. Terrific. If you want to learn how to advocate for a cause or educate policymakers, I invite you to sign up for our challenge on our website at beyondthepapergown.com. It's called the Aftershocks Challenge Policy and Legislation, and it was created in conjunction with our previous webinar called Aftershocks, which focused on the impact of the overturn of Roe v. Wade, and it's a good start for advocacy on any topic. It's a step-by-step -step guide that will help you make your voice heard on issues important to you. I do hope you find it's helpful. Our podcast is produced by Patrick Shambayati and myself, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian. Thanks for listening.